From the School of International Service at American University in Washington, this is Big World, where we talk about something in the world that truly matters. The word nationalism is as fraught and multi-layered a concept as one can imagine. To some, it's simply love of one's country and a benign form of patriotism. To others, it's an ideology with strands of racism and even genocide. Whatever its Merriam-Webster definition, at this time in U.S. history, nationalism is inextricably linked to far-right politics and far-right extremism. Today, we're talking about far-right extremism. I'm Kay Summers, and I'm joined by Carol Gallagher. Carol is a professor in the School of International Service and the school's associate dean for faculty affairs. Carol researches the politics, internal dynamics, and patterns of violence of militias and paramilitaries. She's the author of three books, including On the Fault Line, Race, Class, and the American Patriot Movement. Carol, thanks for joining Big World. It's lovely to be here. Carol, you research far-right extremism in the U.S. In your book about the American Patriot Movement from 2003, you honed in on this patriot movement, which was a broad, far-right U.S. social movement that was fueled by anxieties around globalization. To help kind of set the table for this conversation, tell us, how do you define far-right extremism? So it can be ideological or it can be a physical manifestation. So in terms of ideology, um, normally what you see is a rupture from agreed upon societal norms and values. So just to give you an example of this, on the right, because you have left-wing extremism too, on the right, uh, they're often opposed to values such as equality and norms like like having a role for government and fostering it on the ground. Um, Other kinds of things that far-right extremists might uh, oppose would be the notion that men and women are equal, that all races are equal, or that America is a nation of immigrants, or that the government has a role in preventing discrimination. So a lot of far-right extremists, for example, would be opposed to the Civil Rights Act. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other quick thing I would just add here, too, is that extremism can be violent. So often these ideologies, if you don't believe in equality, and someone who is someone you don't believe is equal to you, that's less than you, is gaining in social ground, then you might support violence to stop that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd also say that the far right is not unified, mm-hmm. so it's not one big movement. There are actually a lot of different movements or groups on the far right, and they often don't get along, and their targets, who they are opposed to, varies. So you have neo-Nazis, you have white nationalists, or the alt-right as it's often called today. You have male supremacists, you have groups that are anti-immigrant, groups that are anti-Muslim, anti-LGBT, Christian identity groups, neo-Confederates, black nationalists, and militia and, pa- and patriot groups. So just to think about you know, who the targets are, new Nazis are often targeting people of Jewish descent. Uh, militia patriot groups are normally focusing on the government as the enemy. So these groups all kind of have societal, have norms that are outside of societal norms and have views that are outside the kind of range of societal norms. Um, but they often use similar tactics, and they often don't believe in equality, but who they think the problem is varies. You described that most people who joined the patriot movement were white, working-class males. Now, this is a book you had published about 16 years ago, but it seems like this trend of this demographic comprising the lion's share of people involved in far-right extremism has not changed. What would you say that it is about far-right extremism that attracts white working-class men. So I would start by saying, just to be fair, that all most white working-class men are not extremists. Mm-hmm. Um, however, uh, most of these groups on the far-right are run by white men 
although not always working class men, and they typically target this group. And they tend to try to do this by addressing two sets of concerns or anxieties. Sometimes they're separate, sometimes they overlap. And the first is globalization broadly. And it's important to think about like, well, what does globalization mean for an average white working class man? It often means job loss. Mm -hmm. So if you go to um, places in Ohio or, or Buffalo, New York, or even near where I grew up in Alta Vista, Virginia, mm -hmm. uh, people, white working class men, worked in factories. Mm -hmm. And beginning in the late 80s, mid 80s, late 80s, and, and accelerating in the 90s, uh, those factories left the country, or they shut down. And so these people lost their jobs. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of anxiety about a world that's so globally interconnected, because for this category of people, uh, globalization hasn't been positive. Mm -hmm. And neither political party has really addressed those concerns head on in a fundamental way. So a lot of these groups target these men around those kinds of working class issues. Another kind of connected area is a sense among white working class men that people that were below them on the social hierarchy previously mm -hmm. are now gaining ground while they are losing ground. This can be women, it can be minorities, it can be new, newly arrived immigrants into a town where they live. And so it's kind of a generalized anxiety. Like, think about it this way. If you're a white working class man and you were the breadwinner and your factory job goes away and you can't find a replacement job and your wife starts working or now she's the primary breadwinner, you feel like this isn't right, that you should be the primary breadwinner. And you could be, you know, those issues could be addressed by left-wing uh, groups as well, but the right has tended to address these groups more fundamentally. And it says this is wrong. You are, you should be at the natural top of the hierarchy, mm -hmm. and you're not. And so why is that? Who is to blame? Is it the government? Is it, you know, quote-unquote Jewish people or Muslims mm -hmm. or immigrants, whatever it is? The idea is that we're going to help you recover that place that you um, think you should be at the top of and that we agree you should be at the top of, of a social hierarchy. Which kind of brings us to politics. You mentioned uh, politicians sort of uh, weaponizing this almost. Since Donald Trump became a candidate for president in 2015 with that speech that was full of anti-immigrant rhetoric, much of the rise in what we could term extreme activity or invective has been laid at his feet, for better or for worse. I'd like your thoughts on whether President Trump has galvanized and empowered a movement or if he's only exposed something that was brewing under the surface and was going to explode no matter what. And the question for you, Carol, as someone who's been studying this for a while, is far-right extremism seeing a spike in activity or has this movement actually been working toward this moment for many years and the role played by President Trump was incidental? So before I even get to the question of Trump, I would say it's good to keep in mind that far-right extremism in the U.S. has been with us from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Literally since the beginning of European settlement, there were groups like the South Carolina regulators that would go out and attack Native American groups. Mm -hmm. uh, always groups in towns and cities out on the sort of frontier who would go after vulnerable populations. Mm -hmm. So this sort of far-right extremism isn't new. It tends to be cyclical. In the contemporary period, which I would define as post-World War II, mm -hmm. um, it's been related to a couple of different variables. Sometimes it's a specific crisis. Also elections, so in, the, in, a, in a positive and a negative sense in terms of growth. So when Bush was elected after 9-11, you actually saw a decline mm -hmm. in these groups. After Obama was elected, you saw an uptick for the first four to six years, and then you had a sort of a decline. And then when Trump was elected, 
you saw an increase in some far-right groups, not all. Mm -hmm. Militia groups actually didn't go up, Mm -hmm. but white supremacist groups, uh, for example, did. So I would say you can't lay this all at Trump's feet, Mm -hmm. um, but I think what's important to keep in mind about what Trump has done is he's used his bully pulpit, and Mm -hmm. traditionally that would be speeches and press conferences for Trump, it's Twitter, and he's used this to normalize um, views that are that were outside of the mainstream, and even sentiments that you would not have said uh, two years ago. After the white supremacist uh, march in Charlottesville, Virginia, he said, you also had some very fine people on both sides. Mm-hmm. And for me, that was jarring. I'm a Gen, Gen X person. Mm-hmm. My dad was a World War II veteran. And you know, he, I remember him telling me and my sister when, when we were growing up, and he didn't talk about the war very much, but he said Eisenhower made, uh, General Eisenhower at the time, made all the troops in the American theater go to a concentration camp. Most of the troops, by the time they got to a concentration camp, the, the people that were surviving had been left, but the infrastructure was there, mass graves were still there, remains, clothing, things like this were there. And the idea was every American soldier in the European theater will see this. Mm -hmm. And they were fighting fascists. Mm -hmm. They were not um, fighting for freedom of speech. Mm -hmm. They were fighting fascists. So I think, you know, for me, it's just, it was such a jarring comment to equate, uh, you know, white supremacists and neo-Nazis who were in the streets in Charlottesville with people who were protesting them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he died in 2012. I'm glad he didn't see that. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, to me, it's just kind of shocking. And it's it's a really jarring moment if you think about this from a from the perspective of, of where we are temporarily from the end of World War II, that generation's dying out. But that would have been unthinkable mm-hmm. not that long ago. Yeah, and I think whenever I hear someone say, he's just saying what people already think, I think that may sadly be true in some cases, but saying it changes it saying it changes the dynamic totally changes it. it 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 totally changes it and that's why i think i was looking at um david duke's uh, fa- twitter feed and i believe it was after charlottesville and he you know he obviously was looking at these comments in a very positive light so to the extent that he's normalizing it he's also sending a message whether he means to send it or not i think you know you could argue that i suppose i think it's pretty clear what he's trying to say but even if you don't think that's what he meant, it's clear that the audience of white supremacists and neo-Nazis saw this as an opening. Mm-hmm. The president of the United States thinks that this is okay to say and do. Yeah. Carol, for your book, you interviewed members of Kentucky's Patriot Movement. And one Kentucky Patriot said, you see, I'm not a racist, a sexist, or a xenophobe. I'm a nationalist. And President Trump also stated that he was a nationalist at one of his rallies saying... A globalist is a person that wants the globe to do well, frankly, not caring about our country so much. And you know what? We can't have that, end quote. So what is the purpose of using the word nationalist in far-right political rhetoric? So it kind of serves two purposes, and sometimes they're separate and mm-hmm. sometimes they're overlapped. Um, the first is to signal your anti-globalization, that you you are opposed to sort of free trade and the way it's brought um, economies together mm-hmm. and in a ways that make it very difficult to extricate yourself. I mean, if we look at Brexit, this is a good example of how complicated it is to pull out of, of a global economy. <laughs> the second way is to signify, um, and again, it's a shorthand or a code word for America as a white Christian nation. Mm-hmm. So I would say my experience studying militia groups, I went to meetings um, in the late to mid-90s, uh, militia meetings, and 
they focused on anti-globalization, but it was clear that some of the members of the group also saw this as connected to sort of a white nation, but they didn't tend to, mm -hmm. s to say those words. So that, that quote that you gave to me, that's from a militia leader, mm -hmm. and he, he was saying to me, I'm glad you came and talked to me because we aren't a racist militia. It's not what our goal is, is to focus on minority groups. Mm -hmm. So I think it's difficult to, to pull the two apart, but I think one way to think about it is if you're, if you're studying groups, what's the emphasis this group is focused mm -hmm. on? Is it on globalization and the economic effects, or is it on race and religion? But again, it's really hard to completely pull those apart. Mm -hmm. And I guess as a follow-up, I'm curious, has nationalism always been, at least to some people, a dog whistle for racism, or is it a word that has ever had truly a more neutral meaning? Well, I think it, it would be hard to like go back beyond the 1900s mm -hmm. and make that argument, but I, I think it's very clear in the 1900s, it was a century of nationalism, mm -hmm. and it brought us two world wars and millions upon millions of death. Mm -hmm. So it's really hard to look at nationalism with that relatively recent history and go, oh, nationalism's no big deal. Mm -hmm. I mean, the the term, ha if you if you study any history at all, mm -hmm. and most of us have to study World War I or World War II in high school, it's nationalism was a big problem. I mean, mm -hmm. it led to horrific deaths um, when countries em embraced it. And so, yeah, it's, it's kind of hard to separate it from that history. Mm -hmm. Carol, are there patterns of violence within right-wing extremism since 2016? And if so, what are they? A lot of non-lethal attacks are up. And so mm -hmm. one way to look at this is um, hate crimes. And hate crimes are basically traditional crimes that are deemed by prosecutors to be motivated by um, prejudice of some sort. Mm -hmm. And the FBI reports that in 2017, hate crimes uh, were up 17% over 2016, which is itself a, a, a high mark year. So it's really, it has gone up. The The lethality of it is not necessarily greater, but by any big significant um, margin. But the, the amounts of attacks, so for example, arson of churches or, you know, getting in, assaulted on the street, these kinds of attacks are way up. D.C. also has experienced um, an increase in attacks, although in D.C., interestingly, it's been focused on LGB LGBTQ populations. Mm -hmm. And this may be an impossible question, but why are we seeing this increase? What's the why? Well, I think one kind of way to think about it, and I, I can't explain the exact why, because if I could, then I would be a Stop millionaire. <laughs> I would you know, I'd be able to solve crime. Uh, I would be a superhero. But I think it's interesting that the larger pattern is that... Um, Right now, extremist violence in the U.S. tends to be concentrated on the right, not the mm -hmm. left. That was not the case in the 60s, for example, the Weather Underground, other groups. But now it's concentrated on the right. And it tends to be um, equal or a little bit higher, it kind of depends on what stat you look at, than um, terrorism by other groups inside mm -hmm. the U.S. Since 1980, the way the U.S. economy has been organized has radically changed, mm -hmm. and that's led to these big shifts. We haven't had mass migrations in the way that other countries have because we were a fairly wealthy country to begin mm -hmm. with, but it's changed the way people live. Mm -hmm. It's changed what kind of jobs they have. It's changed where they see themselves in the country and how attached they feel to it. It's changed everything. And so I think those structural factors have to have, you know, we need to think about them as a, an important backdrop. But we also have to look at the fact that right now is a good environment for mobilization. There's there's less kind of social taboo 
and saying openly openly racist things or mm -hmm. joining um, you know an alt right group. I mean, I think a lot of people would have hesitated to do that, and mm -hmm. now people are willing to go on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and identify themselves in this way. Right. Carol Gallagher, it's time to take five. This is when you, our guest, get to daydream out loud and reorder the world as you'd like it to be by single-handedly instituting five policies or practices that would change the world for the better. Specifically, what are the top five ways you would counter far-right extremism? So I think the first big thing I would do is say that we have to treat domestic extremism as a serious problem and as serious as international terrorism. So when white males kill people, go to a synagogue, for example, in Pittsburgh and kill people, or they go to a church and kill people, um, we shouldn't resort to thinking about their mental illness. Th this was an act of terror. Uh, my second um, policy change, and it's, it's kind of big and broad, but we need to do investment in rural and, and exurban areas. These are places that have seen disinvestment of jobs in the agricultural sector, in uh, factories. And far-right extremism doesn't just happen in rural areas, but it's certainly an attractive place for people who've seen their communities fall apart. Mm -hmm. Opioid um, addiction is, a, is another manifestation of these problems in rural America. So we need to fix, we need to think about that. We need to actually have a game plan. What do we want to do in these communities? Right. The third is um, we need to promote the role of government and, and really celebrate the fact that government is not this big bad monster. It built the interstate highway system. Mm -hmm. It built the beltway. Government in and of itself is not the problem. And we need to really fight that fight and say that. I also think we need to educate people about the Holocaust. Most millennials and certainly Generation Z don't have anyone in their family who has a living memory of World War II. So they don't have a, a sense of just how devastating the Holocaust was and, what, and how it was connected to nationalism. And that's important because if you don't know that history, then you can equate a neo-Nazi group with Occupy Wall Street or Antifa. They're not the same thing. One group wants to exterminate a whole group of people based on their ethnic and religious heritage. Uh, Antifa doesn't want to do that, neither did wa Occupy Wall Street. But if you don't know that history, how do you distinguish between a neo-Nazi and uh, Antifa? And finally, I think that we need to develop counter-narratives to the normalization of hate. So anytime the president or congressperson or people influence with, with influence and power um, talk about hate and try to normalize it, we have to push, we have to push back. We mm -hmm. have to constantly uh, and vigilantly uh, produce counter-narratives so that, that it's not the dominant narrative and that, that we undermine those narratives of hate. Thank you. Thank you. Carol, you wrote that the people who joined the Patriot Movement had little success in actually meeting their stated goals, and that the movement, while allowing Patriots to express racial anxiety and pride, did little in terms of solving their issues. So what are the actual problems of far-right extremists? Is it 
economic inequality? Is it access to educational opportunity, history of domestic violence, substance abuse, or some combination of all those things? What would you say? Well, I would go back to my um, time in the mid-90s doing mm -hmm. research and going to these meetings. There wasn't one thing they were looking at, looking for. I mean, some of it was a sense of belonging. Mm -hmm. Some of it was about deindustrialization. In Kentucky, a lot of it had to do with the tobacco settlement, um, environmental regulations on coal, and the decline of coal, which wasn't just about the environmental regulations. There was also just kind of a sense of a fear of white male status eroding, mm -hmm. but it wasn't often said exactly in those terms. Mm -hmm. It was like, you know, I'm, I'm not better off than my mom and dad were, or I thought my life would be better than this. And I see all these new people coming in and, and they're getting things I'm not getting. And mm -hmm. so, you know, there was this kind of sense of, a, grievement. Of yeah, aggrievement yeah. and status ero erosion. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that they were necessarily poor, but that they felt their status was eroding. And just kind of a generalized fear of the other. Mm -hmm. uh, I think these fears are kind of roughly the same, although the specific instances are different, but, they're, but they tend to be rooted in these kind of macro-level changes, but mm -hmm. also in this cultural, cultural um, fear. Mm -hmm. um, and in terms of whether it solves problems, I would say if you're looking for a sense of belonging, you can find it mm -hmm. in these groups. So it solves that problem, <laughs> but does it solve the bigger problems? No. Right. So that, that sense of belonging kind of plays into this next question, our, our, our last question. Carol, when you were researching that patriot movement, you mentioned that the Internet played a role in recruitment. So obviously since then there's been this huge rise of social media that we've mentioned. How do platforms like Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter impact not just you know the flotsam that flies around with what people say, but actual recruitment? So I call it um, self-radicalization. Mm -hmm. It's like do-it-yourself um, far-right extremism. So you can um, self-educate. You can read things that, that help you interpret events through a right-wing extremist sort of prism. Uh, and once you've self-educated, if you want to go and do something about it, there are various plans from very concrete how to build bombs to mm -hmm. how to do attacks on the Internet. You can follow that on your own. And then you can actually go out and do an attack. Mm -hmm. and, and you don't have to necessarily be part of a group. You don't have to be in a guerrilla or a paramilitary organization to go off and do this. I also think, you know, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all of these have normalized hate. So mm -hmm. I, you know, I think I mentioned I look at the Twitter feeds of far-right uh, folks. And, you know, a lot of people talk about Twitter and the alt-right, for example, and they say this is basically a way for the alt-right to troll people. And mm -hmm. that's true. Leslie Jones of SNL, um, the Gamergate conspiracy. Mm -hmm. But also, if you, I, I just finished a study looking at five different alt-right Twitter feeds uh, for about a three-month period. And most of the stuff they say isn't trolling. It's just normalizing, you know, hate. Mm -hmm. And not, you know, saying it, you know, not putting out videos where you're screaming into a mic. You're, it's like a Breitbart on steroids, right? Mm -hmm. You're just writing about why we shouldn't have Jews in the country or why we shouldn't have black people in the country or ruminating on how we would make America white without violence. Mm -hmm. Again, things that would have been really taboo to say and do in the past. Now, Twitter will go after and, and take people off of Twitter that are engaged in violence, mm -hmm. but someone like Richard Spencer is a good example of this. 
Richard Spencer is often seen as the founder or leader of, of this loose grouping of people called the alt-right. Um, his Twitter feed is sort of, uh, well, first of all, it's, it, he doesn't encourage violence on the Twitter mm -hmm. feed. He just kind of talks about things that, that would normally have been considered you know, way out of bounds um, on Twitter. And it's also kind of stylized production. Mm -hmm. So you know, the people that have these Twitter accounts they manage them like they are managing their image. Mm -hmm. So really like professional pictures of themselves yep. uh, on their on the picture part of the page. They will post pictures of themselves where they look glamorous. There mm -hmm. are women that do this. Mm -hmm. So it's just normalizing it. Yeah, I think there's something also about having this sentiment mixed in with the other things that you're seeing. So if if a if a a teen or 20-something or is, is following, I don't know, an Instagram star or like one of the Kardashians or somebody or, you know, is into style or whatnot, but then they're also seeing this kind of stuff filtered in. It, it kind of brings it all in that same playing field. It makes it all seem like it's perfectly normal and fine, and that's sort of the normalization is just having it all right there, equal placement. It's just part of the feed. Yeah, no, that's a that's a really good way of thinking about it. And I'll just give you an example. Um, so there, um, there's a alt right uh, woman called Lana Latka, and if you go on her Twitter feed, it's it's like she's young, she's glamorous, she's very attractive. She she never has a bad picture of herself on the twi <laughs> Twitter feed. Not that anybody really puts bad pictures of themselves <laughs> up, but like it's look they look like they're professional photographs. Mm -hmm. And some of it's like, you know, I'm going to retweet the blonde bunner maker who's going to show me how to grow catnip and use it, mixed in with, you know, uh, we are losing our whiteness in Europe and we're under threat to pictures of uh, blonde women dancing in Russia and examples of white Russian culture. Mm -hmm. And so it, the, the right used to be kind of, you know, stodgy, grumpy old mm -hmm. men or crazy you know, middle-aged men, mm -hmm. and they've really, the, the alt-right, which tends to skew younger, has really gone out of their way to try to make it look and feel hip. Wow. So you, when you were talking about it's just one other thing on the feed, yeah. it doesn't stand out mm -hmm. in terms of the images and the visual narrative, the script of it. Mm -hmm. And so then you're like, well, if, if it all kind of looks the same, you know, Kim Kardashian and Lana Lotkef may not look alike, but they're both kind of stylized in mm -hmm. a certain way, then you can just read the two feeds and, you know, go about your business and not really realize one of these feeds is not like the other. Right, <laughs> right, right. One of these is giving me a dose of hate and I don't even know. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Mixed in with, again, you know, a retweet about how to grow catnip mm -hmm. or bake bread. <laughs> Carol Gallagher, thank you for joining Big World to discuss far-right extremism. It's been a pleasure to talk with you, and I learned a lot today. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Big World is a production of the School of International Service at American University. Our theme music is It Was Just Cold by Andrew Codeman. Until next time.